is an Odyssey original. This is KNX In-Depth. I'm Mike Simpson. I'm Charles Feldman. Overcrowded animal shelters in the city of L.A. have angered animal rights activists and even local lawmakers. The hearing yesterday focusing on the conditions there with one rescue group calling for disruptive and systemic change that should include making private the shelters. We'll go in-depth into whether that would better save the animals. The January 6th committee was hoping for lots of text messages from the Secret Service, but instead they only got one. Is that going to hurt the committee's case? And President Biden taking action to deal with climate change as much of the country is dealing with extreme heat. Netflix says some changes are coming as it navigates through losing nearly a million subscribers in the past three months. We go back to Ukraine, where a theater group is trying to get back to normal after spending about a month taking shelter in their basement theater. Google is testing out some new high-tech glasses, and lots of people struggle to pass the DMV written test. We're going to help you and your teen avoid the pain of taking that thing over and over again. Wouldn't it be better if they had to keep doing an actual driving test? Yeah, that's like once every 60 years. Don't worry about it. It's all yeah. fine. Everyone's <laughs> doing so great out there. Yeah, I know. So. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say, it kind of shows, you know. We start, though, with uh, L.A. Animal Shelters. Jill Deshay is executive director of the rescue group Out of the Cage. She's calling for the shelters to become private. Jill, thanks for being with us. What advantage would a private shelter have, do you think, over a city or perhaps a county-run shelter? Hey, Mark, Mike and Charles, thanks for having me. Yeah, you know, the privatization idea, you know, I want to make clear that I'm, I'm not pro-privatization in every case, but in this particular instance, L.A. Animal Services needs disruptive changes, right? I mean, we have seen attempts at small thinking and incremental changes, and they just haven't worked. So I think as this L.A. Times article has done, we really need to blow open the doors and look at running the shelter system much more like a private business. Uh, and the differences in everything from strategy to the way people are measure, measured to the way operations are done uh, to the way infrastructure is managed could be huge and ultimately not only cost-saving but life-saving. How do you envision or who do you envision would be running these? Because some people will hear the word privatization. They think, oh, great, that's exactly what we need. Some business swooping on in and trying to squeeze some profits out of the animal shelters. Uh, then the animals are going to be served uh, even worse by that. Or is it like nonprofits take them over? You know, it, the model could vary. But you know what? There are a lot of talented executives out there who would love a chance to sink their teeth into um, you know, the disruptive change of a, of a municipal institution that really is designed based on, you know, ideas circa 1947 when L.A. Animal Services was first built, right? And so, you know, there's so much opportunity. Those of us on the inside see it every day for innovation, for new big thinking, for fresh ideas, you know, for new technologies, uh, for new business processes. I mean, I was just at the shelter the other day, and a doctor had been waiting for 45 minutes to sign the adoption paperwork, right? So yeah. if you look at the collection of efficiencies, you could actually calculate ROI and cost savings. And that's the kind of thing I think that taxpayers deserve. Right, but Jill, uh, I, I mean... I'm thinking of other examples where private enterprise has taken over things that used to be 
the domain of municipalities or, or county or state governments. I'm thinking, for example, of, of prisons uh, for humans. Uh, yeah. You know, yeah. a, a tremendous amount of scandal all over the country uh, about prisons that have become private and profit-oriented hospitals around the country that are no longer uh, nonprofits but private uh, often are engulfed in all kinds of scandals because profit is the motive. So I'm wondering what the model is that would make anyone think that it would be beneficial to make shelters for animals private. Right. Well, and if you look at the measurement of the executives in the prison system, for instance, you know, they're measured on cost savings and revenue generation. It doesn't necessarily have to look like that in a shelter situation, right? And that's something that, I mean, I'm not, you know, I wasn't around when the prison system was privatized, but that's something that a coalition of interested individuals from across uh, interests need to establish prior to privatization. What does success look like? How do we pay for this? How do we fund it? What are our external partnerships? And, you know, how do we optimize operations around life-saving initiatives and and not the way we've always done things, right? I get that, so but, but would, it, would it be... the right measurements at the beginning yeah, but if you want um, to be, is, a, but, is a huge factor. Yeah, but if, but if you want to be disruptive to the system, and I hear you on that, uh, wouldn't it be disruptive and maybe uh, easier to just fire the people who are not doing the job they should be doing and hire the people who can do the job? Well, I mean, I... I it's easier said than done. I mean, that's the problem is, and we heard yesterday uh, in Paul Caretz's meeting from the attorneys for the unions, and I think there's a lot of entrenchment uh, of the, you know, leadership status quo right now. So I think firing unproductive people um, hasn't been an option in the LA Animal Services system like it should be. And, and don't get me wrong, there are superstars at LA Animal Services who are working really hard and they're exhausted and they're the next ones to go, right? And so I think what we're left with is a bunch of very tired people and, you know, we've seen people, you know, just telling us that they want to hang on until they get their pension. So I agree with you 100% there. I mean, it would be great to have a, you know, management shift, somebody who's a real leader with a vision and a strategy and some modern measurements and technologies. But I think that's too big to ask in the incumbent system. Jill Deshay, Executive Director, the Rescue Group, out of the cage. The January 6th committee was supposed to get a bunch of text messages from the Secret Service ahead of tomorrow's primetime hearing into what former President Trump was doing at the time of the insurrection. But they were deleted. The Secret Service only turned over one, that's right, one text message. So what now? Daniel Lipman is the White House and Washington reporter for Politico. Uh, Daniel, thanks for coming back to the show. So uh, one text message, huh? Yeah, it's, it's rather embarrassing for the Secret Service because um, they blame this long-planned system migration, uh, and they did tell employees, hey, you have to upload the data on your phone to um, like a backup system, but uh, they did not enforce that, and a lot of people, uh, a lot of agents uh, just did not follow what their supervisors were telling them, uh, and so we're left with a lot of missing gaps in terms of um, you know, information around Trump and Pence uh, and what was happening on January 6th, especially in that presidential car.
Are we to believe, though, there's no other way to get this stuff? I mean, do the carriers, do the networks not have them? Are they not somewhere? Well, like, think about how many, you know, millions, hundreds of millions of text messages fly through the airways every day uh, trying to recover things from a year and a half ago um, is just a technically difficult matter if not impossible because uh, you know this is not stuff that we don't want all our telecom companies keeping everything uh, on our you know on our phones uh, in case we get wrapped up in the congressional investigation or just for any other purposes. <laughs> yeah, as one does, as it happens. Yeah, but but I guess so it, by... it, it just it seems it seems tough for them. But they're trying everything they can, but unlikely. But I guess what surprises me, uh, Daniel, is is I, I get it that you know maybe the phone companies don't don't keep uh, records uh, of this, but you would think that the Secret Service which has to deal with all of this sort of, you know, security issues, some involving terrorism, a lot involving the security of of whoever happens to be president of the United States. You would think just for internal uh, investigatory purposes, in case they decided they needed to investigate an agent, something like that, you would think they would have some redundancy in this system so that if they really needed to, they could always go back and get the history of text messages. Uh, you would think that, but this is the government we're talking about, and so nothing is uh, easy. And <laughs> things uh, things that seem uh, like good ideas or common sense uh, are sometimes kind of forgotten. Like, just imagine how like difficult it is to renew your driver's license sometime, or you know, look at how uh, complex it is to file your taxes even if you don't have multiple income streams. And so, um, this seems boneheaded, but um, I'm sure there were some of those uh, agents at the Secret Service who liked Trump, and so maybe they weren't totally invested in uh, revealing everything that had happened in the car. There's been back and forth between the Secret Service and Cassidy Hutchinson, the, the former Trump aide. Uh, and so it does seem awfully convenient, but we just don't know um, you know, what is ex- exactly happening. I'm an Aspen security foreman, DHS Secretary Alejandro Mayorkas, you know, said yesterday, you know, they're committed to trying to get to the bottom of it. But obviously, he doesn't have the easiest message to sell since if these text messages are gone, they're gone, even though they're trying to recover them. To the last point there about um, what went on in that SUV, do people get too hung up, do you think, on if, you know, the former president actually grabbed an agent or grabbed the wheel? Or is the bigger thing that no one has actually said uh, did not happen was the fact that he wanted to go to the Capitol? Uh, well, he did say he wanted to go to the Capitol. And so if there are text messages that say, hey, he grabbed the wheel or he wanted to go to the Capitol or he was, you know, really angling to go, like that doesn't reveal a ton new information. And so I think it's less about the content of these text messages and more about that they were deleted and that these Secret Service agents did not follow the proper uh, procedures in terms of if you were going to have this system migration, you were told at least once, uh, if not more, to save your data. We always hear, save your data, back it up. And they haven't even done an after-action review when the uh, vice president's life was on the line and there was a, uh, you know, a massive violent breach of uh, a, you know, system, you know, a branch of government. They haven't even done an internal investigation about, hey, let's let's look at everything that worked. Let's look at what didn't. Uh, And they, in some ways, in many ways, they do have a good story to tell. They protected Pence. 
and nothing bad happened to principals. But this was um, doesn't seem like the Secret Service is pinging themselves in glory right now. Daniel Lipman, White House and Washington reporter for Politico. Uh, right now, though, the president announcing new executive steps to fight climate change, but he didn't issue this climate emergency declaration. It's been talked about that some Democrats had hoped for. With us is CBS News White House correspondent Stephen Portnoy. Steve, thanks for being back with us. So, yeah, let's take the side of those Democrats and say, uh, Mr. Biden, what's the holdup? Why did you wait? Well, fellas, you know, just so you know, he, he has not uh, yet decided on an emergency declaration. He did use the word emergency today in a speech uh, outside of Fall River, Massachusetts, which is very close to the Rhode Island border, where he stood uh, essentially amid the ruins of a former coal-fired power plant that's now being turned into a facility where they're going to make submarine cables for wind power. It's meant to send a signal to uh, activists that the president is committed to take action on climate change, but he has not yet taken the step that they've so far called on him to do, which is declare that the national emergency exists with respect to climate change. He did say today that climate change is a clear and present danger. He did use the word emergency and says he thinks of it that way. He did sig- signal that there will be orders and proclamations issued in the coming weeks. He says he will not take no for an answer because uh, you know that Senator Manchin said last week that he would not get on board with a budget bill that includes climate investments that uh, his party uh, has been pushing. But the president today did not take the kind of dramatic steps that we've been talking about. Okay, so the question is, A, why didn't he? And B, even if he does and when he does, what difference would it make? Well, two great questions, Charles. You know, and, and, and the answers are not clear coming out of the White House. We've, we've tried to get them all week to explain uh, their positions on both. It, it seems as though there is a debate internally among the president and his aides as to whether uh, the president has the power to do some of the things that uh, activists would like him to do. And beyond that, there's the question of whether he should do the things that activists want him to do, particularly uh, things such as a ban on oil exports, uh, some sort of action that might affect uh, offshore drilling. Is now the time when gas prices are as high as they are? For, and the president's coming under political pressure on the right in the, in the heat of a midterm election to, to act? Or is now exactly the time when you see wildfires raging in Europe, where you have uh, uh, temperatures in the United Kingdom higher than any on record? Uh, these are the competing pressures that inform the debate that's going on inside the White House, which has not yet resolved, resulted in a determination one way or the other, except to say that the president made this speech today to draw, draw attention to the fact that he is considering these issues, that he is going to take action, that he will not take no for an answer, and that he does believe that climate change is a clear and present danger. All this seems to be uh, a predicate to whatever's coming next, but it isn't coming today. If he does this and it frees up a bunch of cash, does that actually get used to go and build more wind or build more solar? Or are we doing these things where we make a speech and we say, we're going to change these rules and ease the way, and then we'll see that in, like, I don't know, 15 years? Well, so, right. So it, 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 it's a carrot-and-stick approach, right? You'd think about, you know, maybe the president could take action that would uh, be more on the stick side. You're talking about the carrot side, which is incentives or, or actual funding to facilitate some of the green energy Solutions, And that's another part of the, the push the activists are making, particularly the Democrats in Congress say that if the president were to declare a national emergency, there are some uh, cash reserves that could flow that could be directed towards certain uh, initiatives. But these would not be major projects. They would have to be 
uh, a relatively small scale. The president doesn't have the power under the Constitution to simply uh, let money flow from the Treasury without it being appropriated specifically by Congress. There are some limited uh, cash that might be uh, directed from funds that are reserved for emergency purposes for, for unique uh, and special cases. But uh, the, the idea that the president could uh, uh, snap his fingers and say, I've decided that we're going to regulate um, you know, greenhouse gas emissions in a way that the Supreme Court just a month ago said is a major question that has to be reserved for Congress is probably not going to uh, withstand scrutiny in the courts. And that's definitely a part of the debate inside the White House. CBS News White House correspondent Stephen Portnoy. This is KNX In-Depth with Mike Simpson. I'm Charles Feldman. The good news, the bad news for Netflix. Bad news is it lost 970,000 subscribers last quarter. The good news is that it said it was going to lose 2 million. (laughs) Netflix is also considering giving people a cheaper tier option, but with ads starting next year. Now, that means you may have to sit through those ads. Well, that's the purpose of ads, isn't it, to sit through them? I mean, I guess, right? You, know, okay. you can't fast forward. No, no, that's the whole thing. Uh, Heidi Chung is the media analyst and correspondent for Variety Intelligence Platform. She's lead author of Variety's upcoming report on how inflation is impacting entertainment. Heidi, thanks for being with us. So uh, I get why Netflix, uh, any company, I suppose, would want to put a positive spin on, you know, losing a million subscribers. Yeah, well, we could have lost two or, yeah, they could have lost 10, I suppose. But it can't be good news that they lost a million subscribers, can it? I mean, it's definitely not good news, but just judging by the stock reaction that we're seeing today, it seems as if investors are actually, you know, breathing a sigh of relief here. You know, they were saying two million was going to be lost, but one million, eh, it's a little better. But I think what's really, really concerning when we take a look at the regions in which subscriber growth accelerated, the home area of the United States and Canada lost more than a million subscribers. So we're seeing growth in Asia Pacific and other regions as well. But here at home where penetration is actually, I mean, a lot of people are saying we might have reached maximum penetration. We're not going to see a lot more growth in this region for some time. So what do we think it is? Has the content uh, taken a drop or is there just too many choices out there and I got to figure out which ones I'm going to pay for and which ones I'm not? That's exactly right. So before Netflix was the king, right? They were sitting up on their throne, um, reaping all the benefits of being the leader. But right now there's just so much competition in the space. We have Disney Plus, Paramount Plus, HBO Max. I mean, consumers just have way too many options at this point. Um, And as far as content, Netflix is still killing it. They have Stranger Things, they have Ozark, they have a ton of other franchises that they're going to be able to monetize, but they can't just rely on that anymore. So even if they do have so many subscribers, it's more than 220 million global subscribers, they're going to have to figure out a way to monetize the existing subscribers that they have and make sure that their churn rate does not decrease further. So I mean, increase further, excuse me. Now the churn rate to put it in, you know, as simple as I can, it's basically just the number of subscribers that are leaving the service over a certain period of time. Now in the media space, churn rates are very, very important. And a lot of analysts and even Main Street people look to that number to sort of gauge the health of the company. But are they leaving because they think Netflix is too costly or they think that other services are more bang for the buck or or they're spending too much in aggregate or what? I think it's a confluence of all the things you just mentioned. Um, Earlier when you were introducing me, you mentioned that 
I am leading a report right now just looking at how consumers are spending their money when it comes to entertainment subscriptions, as well as activities, given the fact that we have sky high inflation and a lot of concerns out there that a recession might be on the horizon. And what we found, we did a survey not too long ago, about two weeks ago, and we found that consumers are actually starting to cut their spending on things like Netflix, Hulu, Spotify. Now, it's not a huge number, but if we do, in fact, go into an economic recession, I think we can start to see the consumers start to pull back. We haven't exactly seen data from um, economic releases tell us that consumer spending is slowing, but consumers are so, so important for the economy. It represents 70% of GDP. So if they start to change their habits, that's going to be a signal that there's trouble ahead. So is free or cheaper with ads the next frontier? Because apparently they're going to try this. And some have already. I'm I'm watching the new Bosch, which is on whatever it's called, Free V or something, which is an Amazon channel. (laughs) And that's what it is. It's free, but with ads. Yeah. Exactly. So Netflix, as you know, I'm sure is very expensive. It's one of the most expensive services out there. And so they were actually leaving out a lot of people who wanted to enjoy it, but just didn't have the lower price point, whether it's ad supported or not. If you look at data that's out there, ad supported actually does the best in terms of streaming minutes viewed across the entire space. So having that option, they're going to be able to bring in not only ad dollars, but they're going to bring in additional subscribers that couldn't subscribe to Netflix previously. But if you start increasingly relying on ad revenue, uh, ad-supported channels, doesn't that by definition eventually change the content? Uh, If for no other reason, then a pacing of a show has to be adjusted to allow for commercial breaks. Yeah, I mean, that's a great point, but you have to just think about the landscape that we're in. Netflix before, they were all about the binging, right? Netflix and chill um, came out because of of a reason. People were just watching seasons upon seasons of shows all at once, but they're, you know, they're trying different things now because they realize by doing that, they're seeing a lot of people drop off of the platform. So in order to make sure that people stay on the platform and find other shows, they're actually starting to try releasing Uh, episodes, not all at once. We saw them do that with Stranger Things season four. They released seven episodes first, and then we got two episodes later. And that, I think, will prove to be something that will be very beneficial, not just for the revenue perspective, but also just for making sure that churn rate stays low. So I think they're going to have to try a bunch of different things to make sure not only do they not lose subscribers, but they bring in additional subscribers and also make sure that they're monetizing those subscribers efficiently. Heidi Chung, media analyst, correspondent for Variety Intelligence Platform. People in Ukraine are trying to adjust to life during a war on their home soil. The Russian invasion has upended just about every facet of society, including arts and culture. The pro-English theater group in Kiev was moving along, performing in basement theaters, trying to grow their audience. A war hit late in February, of course. The troop took shelter in a basement theater in the capital for about a month to stay safe from bombings and attacks. They used the time to rehearse some new shows. They are now performing again. We have Alex with us, founder of the Pro-English Theater Group in Kiev. Alex, thanks for being here. Uh, So take me to what it was like for that month down in the basement. Uh, Well, the first month was pretty scary and strange because we have to adjust to the way of living in the basement. Our theater premises is the basement, and that's where we hold our actors, directors, cats, and local citizens. We actually have to live there because, well, that's the basement and that's how you can survive attacks in Kiev. And uh, strangely, theater has transformed uh, itself 
into the shelter, which was never meant to be. We meant to keep the audience there to enjoy the performances. And now the people are sleeping there uh, in the place that used to be the audience seats. The people are sleeping there on the palettes and everything. Uh, it's changed because uh, Russians don't attack Kiev harshly, uh, that harshly anymore. But this feeling of, uh, you know, sheltering the arts and staying there in order to survive and creating art in order to survive, it changed the whole perspective. Why we create art in the first place. Alex, That's do you, the do you, change. I mean, is there a lot of demand in, in this very stressful time for people wanting to see plays? Uh, there is. I would say there is. Because, uh, well, uh, like Churchill say, what are we fighting for? You know, these things. If we take away the arts, what are we really fighting for? And that's what many Ukrainians uh, believe. Today, I had a meeting with one of our artists who right now is a soldier in the front line. And he got just two days uh, in Kiev to, for this rotation things. And first thing he did, he comes to the theater. He comes to us to say hello, to say how he feels and everything. And he comes to feel this, uh, to get this feeling of what art is. Because art, uh, in, our, in my understanding, it gives us hope. It makes all of what we do with all the donations, you know, volunteering stuff, uh, war, uh, art gives us hope. It makes the future. So uh, it is important. And we feel like uh, the theater during war keep creating the theater is tremendously important. How did so you how did you get to that that point though? Because I imagine very early on when you're sheltering, you know, trying to stay safe and you're in this area you can use because you you know it's yours and it happens to be underground. Uh, but to start to think and talk with everyone and go, you know what, let's start rehearsing. Let's put something together because people are going to need this and they're going to want this and we've got we've got something to say. Uh, well uh, you know if you put several artists underground and you put them for a quality time, which means like uh, the whole march will live there. You put six actors there, and in the second, the third day, they're like, uh, what? We're not just surviving. We're not just, you know, uh, eating and talking and listening to Zelensky, who is a great guy, uh, and he has great talks. But you feel like you have to create something on your own. And we started, uh, because this has a tremendous potential, many artists, many of these uh, guys together who can say something artistically and we started with simple things we started uh, singing songs the covers and we did a wonderful cover of a town in ukraine which is there is uh, this uh, house of rising sun and we made it into there is a town in ukraine so we made the covers first of all then we felt like it's not enough just singing the old songs is not enough so we started uh, rehearsals because that's what you can do as an actor you can create something connected with realities of today, but also something that potentially will have an impact on society in the future. And rehearsals were very strange because um, audience, not the audience, uh, the people still live next to you. So you rehearse and there is a person sleeping uh, <laughs> next to you, right there <laughs> in the rehearsal area. But you're like, whoa, I got my audience already. I, 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 <laughs> Alex, I'm, I'm curious, Alex, uh, you know, you mentioned uh, your president, Zelensky, who, of course, uh, was an actor. I know he's busy, but have you asked him to do a, maybe a guest star turn in one of the plays? Uh, I thought about it. Not only I thought about it, recently, a couple of days ago, we had a great uh, stage reading where uh, uh, Hollywood actors, William Defoe, including, and Oscar Isaac, 
they read a Greek tragedy together with Ukrainian artists uh, in support of Ukraine. And we were co-organizing the event, we spoke about it, and one of the original ideas was to put Zelensky in it. So it's not only William Defoe, who's a great actor, but to put Zelensky in it, but uh, we tried to approach the guy and he's tremendously busy. He's tremendously busy. I thought he put all acting aside and what he does now, he's trying to save the country. So I believe uh, we will see Zelensky in act, acting, but when Ukraine wins, a little bit later. Yes, he will be, uh, you'll be one of his first stops. Alex, th- thank you so much for talking to us and we're glad you're staying safe. That's uh, the founder of the Pro-English Theater Group there in Kiev. This is KNX In-Depth. He's Mike Simpson. I'm Charles Feldman. Remember Google Glass? This oh, was yeah. like 10 years ago, yeah. those funny-looking glasses, and it was going to change the whole world. Yeah. Uh, didn't quite take off. So they're going to try it again. They're getting back into testing smart glasses. But Google's new augmented reality glasses are a bit different. They lack some cool features you have on our smartphones. With us now is tech blogger Jefferson Graham. So, uh, Jefferson, why do they think Google, why does it think that this is going to be any more successful than the last time they tried this? When, as I recall, and I'm sure you do as well, there are a lot of privacy concerns and people were all kind, you know, up in arms and editorials were being written about. Do we want people roaming the streets, taking, you know, secretive photos and videos and all that other stuff? Why do they think this is going to actually work? Well, first of all. Um, do know that you can't take photos or videos on the new, uh, the new, the new glasses. That's what they're saying to to appease the privacy people. Uh, Google, Facebook, and Apple all believe that we will one day all want to run around wearing these glasses to uh, translate stuff. And I'm a huge skeptic on it. But you know they have a lot more money than me. They may be smarter than I am. I don't know. <laughs> I mean. I wouldn't do it, but you know, in every example that they've done to date has been a failure. Snapchat spectacles has been a big bomb. Uh, the Facebook video glasses have been a bomb. Uh, the Google Glass has been a bomb. Uh, none of them have taken off. Now, in Google's defense, they're going to use this for translation, transcription, visual search, and navigation. So if I go to another country and I start I put these glasses on, it will translate signs. Okay, that's good, right? If it will help me converse with somebody who doesn't speak my language, that's good. And if it can help me get around easier, I don't know how they're going to do that. I, I, that's a little, maybe for, for, um, for walking, but for driving with the glasses on and it. A whole bunch of things flashing right seeing, in your eyeballs. I, yeah. I, I, I don't like it. <laughs> okay, but they're trying for like more assistance rather than entertainment like that's their zone that's their zone now right that's what they're saying now you know that they'll be adding photos and videos into there oh yeah you just know it yeah so so if i understand their concept is so you're like you're walking along the street and you're trying to figure out where you are so rather than arrows has turned right yeah so when you get to the corner rather than like i don't know look up at the street (laughs) sign Yeah. It's gonna, so old fashioned. I know. Instead of like looking up at the sign that says I'm on Broadway, yeah, you you're gonna use the glasses to tell you you're Turn on Broadway. Turn left. Yeah. Turn left. Okay. Yes. That's, that's I mean, a winner. That's fine. It's a winner. Yeah, because I, I, do, do that many people get lost walking? I, I don't know. <laughs> For the segment that does, this is your answer. Um, mm-hmm. The the translation and the the transcript, all that stuff, they have it on app right for your phone the, like google lens or something how well does that 
work? I mean, where are they with this? Mm, you know, it's <laughs> kind of nice. If, uh, I, I, I rarely, if ever, use it. Uh, I, I've held it in front of like a record cover that then told me more information about the band and the liner notes, and that's nice. Uh, but it, it just, it, I think it's one of those things that Google announces and people say, hey, that's cool, and then they never use it. I mean, isn't some of the key to whether this is going to be a success, whether the glasses themselves are fashionable? I mean, if I remember, like the Google. Snapchat ones looked weird. Yeah, I mean, some of them look like rejects from a Star Trek's costume department. <laughs> Jody LaForge? Yeah. yeah. The visor? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, the, uh, the spectacles, I, if I recall, they were like $150 when they first came out. Right now, they're 380 I, I don't think you could give it away. Uh, which is, it's kind of interesting. And, and they're talking about uh, 3D. Uh, actually, it's not available to the public. It's only available to developers uh, who will then put 3D applications into it. And, you know, outside of video games, I just, I'm not seeing it. Uh, obviously, kids love wearing the headsets for video games, and I don't think that's going away. But taking it outside of the living room is a stretch. All right. Tech blogger Jefferson Graham. Jefferson, thanks. My friend was one of the original models for Google Glass. Like, oh, really? Because she was a golfer. She's yeah. a very good golfer. And so they put her in a bunch of sand traps and had her wear them yeah. and do all these, like, mock golfing shop shots because there was going to be this thing where it's like, it'll tell you how far the tee is. And we thought to ourselves, this is either going to be huge or nothing. Is that the person? And it was hit, nothing. Is that the person who hit her hit it with the ball? <laughs> no. <laughs> oh, Okay. Remember taking your written driving uh, test? Was it difficult? Did the question surprise you? Did you fail the first time or the second time? You're far from alone if you did. I remember flashcards. You do? Yeah. Like, yeah. I was so nervous, you know? It's yeah. like a teen driver. Uh, California DMV says the average failure rate over the past two decades is a little over 50%. So a lot of people are failing this thing. Kevin Cruz, owner of Drive Test Car Services in Costa Mesa. It's a driving school. And Roddy Rodiger, professor of psychological and brain sciences, Washington University in St. Louis, co-authored the book Make It Stick, The Science of Successful Learning. Thanks to you both for being here. Uh, Kevin, to you first, is this thing super hard or is everyone just a bad driver? Well, it's not super hard, but people don't take the time to really study all the questions from the California DMV specifically come from the 70-page DMV handbook, which lately the DMV has streamlined since COVID. Less technical, easier to read, easier to understand. Yes, but all the questions specifically come from that DMV handbook for that test. But don't you think that part of the problem, especially for people who have been driving for a while and they then you know need to, for one reason or another, take the test, they just don't bother reading it at all because they figure, hey, I've been driving. I know what I'm doing. Well, that's exactly the problem. They think they know what they're doing, and they can clearly drive, but the DMV driving, uh, well, the written test and the driving test is very detailed, very technical. So there's certainly you have to answer the test, drive for the driving test. So, yes. But there's many tests online you can take from the DMV itself, sample questions, and actual apps that have lots of questions from the test. And also, besides the computer test, which the DMV now offers, you really have to kind of push the issue and ask for the written test. Paper test is much easier to pass than the computer test. Why is that? Uh, well, because you get all the questions up front, skip one, come back to another one, maybe one question answers another one. The computer test is pretty much one and done. You just keep going one, one, one. And you can also actually have somebody ask you the questions on the test. If you're a hard reader, 
different language. There's like eight, eight languages for the written test. Many so, options. So, Roddy, how do people who are taking the test and read uh, however many pages it ends up now being uh, for the driving test, how do they sort of do this, retain enough knowledge in a short amount of time? Because let's be honest, nobody wants to like spend you know like a six-month semester studying the DMV <laughs> book. Yeah, well, it shouldn't be that hard. I mean, I think part of the problem is, uh, well, first, people think they know how to drive, as we said, and maybe they don't even look at the book or just basically skim it. But even if they read it carefully once or twice, uh, some of the information just won't stick. And so uh, taking those practice tests and making up your own practice tests, you can go through the book, you can create, somebody mentioned flashcards already, you can create flashcards uh, and go for almost every item in the booklet and then just test yourself on until you get 100%. And it shouldn't take all that long, but uh, as recommended in our book, Make It Sick, The Science of Successful Learning, uh, flashcards or practice, as we call it, that helps practice get information out of memory. Meaning you're kind of getting it in, but you need to get it out when you need it. And so uh, flashcards and other techniques like that help you get information out of memory. Uh, and that's what you need to pass the test. Kevin, is it uh, also that, you know, this test is very specific, you know, <laughs> for most of us driving and we're going to turn, it's um, I'm going to turn so I don't hit the light pole or the bicycle. It's not like I'm going to measure with my eyeballs and get in that lane uh, however many hundreds of feet I'm supposed to and never before. Well, sure. The, the DV handbook is very specific. There's many numbers you should try to memorize. 100 feet, 200 feet, 200 feet, 100 feet, 50 inches away from a hydrant, 18 inches next to a, uh, when you park next to a curb, 25 in residential, things like that that people don't really focus on. Let me ask you the question that I know a lot of people who are listening to this are thinking. What's the easiest way to cheat on this test? Well, you can't really cheat, but a lot of it is really just common sense. If you read the questions, there's one question where there's really one word that might change the whole dynamic of the question for the answer. And people get flustered. They get frustrated. But, yeah, again, it's just all based on the 70-page DMV handbook. If you read that, highlight the numbers, you're good to go. How many times do I get to fail this before I'm in trouble? So under 18, you have three chances but each chance, you have to wait within one week to take your next one. If you're 18 and over, you can take all three tests the same day. And if you fail those, you can pay another $38 and take three more. So on the theory that eventually if you take enough of these, you're going to by default. <laughs> they're going to wave right. you through. You're fine. Yeah, they're going to get so annoyed. Get back with you. out there. They'll go, yeah, you know what? <laughs> just, just go and drive away. Well, yeah. And as of three months ago, again, the DME's been very streamlined. We're doing the handbook. We've done a lot of DME services. But as of three months ago, you can actually take your test online at home. You don't have to go to the DME at all. Unless you fail a couple times, you may have to come in, but pass online, go into the DME, show your ID, get your permit. For, for the adults driving around oh, oh, listening oh, right now no i mean just for the adults driving around listening right now as a driving instructor person uh what do you wish we would have remembered since we were with you in the car and you had the extra brake pedal what have we forgot that we need to do better at how to drive yeah generally <laughs> well yeah. detailed information looking over your shoulder 
following distance, stopping distance, remembering the rules of the road. Stopping it all. Drive to the conditions. <laughs> yeah. Uh-huh. Kevin Cruz, owner of Drive Test Car Services in Costa Mesa, and uh, Roddy Rodiger, professor of psychological and brain sciences, Washington University in St. Louis. We've talked about this before, and the idea that a lot of people in this town uh, kind of drive like they're the only ones in that lane at that moment, and there was no one else around you at any time. Yeah, I, I, I like driving in, in this city so long as nobody else is on the road. So long as you're not looking, yeah. right? <laughs> Keep my eyes closed, <laughs> step on the gas, and hope for the best. All right.